Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, The Daily Signal's White House correspondent. Today we're going to talk about something that's been, well, kind of in the news recently, and that is climate change and all the discussion over the end of the world by a lot of the uh, the people on, especially on the left, who say that climate change is going to end us. Uh, in one case, Representative uh, Ocasio-Cortez of New York saying that the world's going to come to an end in 10 years. But uh, Fred, I think especially when you look at this from a historical perspective. I know climate change is very big right now, and it has been through most of my adult life, but I think uh, sometimes people lack a little perspective, especially given the uh, discussions about how the world is going to end, which has actually been quite a trend uh, from a lot of alarmists in history. There, there, yeah, there's been so many um, dates certain uh, on, on the world ending and Armageddon, apocalypse coming. Um it is funny, though. I mean, um, most of this is generally from the left. If I, I think if a televangelist were making these uh, apocalyptic predictions, the same people would be the first to mock and laugh at that person. And, and in some cases, rightfully so, of course. But, but, uh, yeah. but, but that these, is definitely true. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, this, uh, um, and these go back, you know, fairly fairly recently. Uh, of uh, we, we talked about uh, this— Current uh, went viral recently on Twitter about a uh, um, a United Nations uh, uh, official that put out a study saying within ten years, uh, entire nations would be wiped out because of global warming if urgent action wasn't taken soon. And of course, that urgent action needed to be taken in. 1989, right. which, is, right. which is what the funny part of the story is, right. is that this is 1989 or, that by the year 2000, right. entire nations would be obliterated. What's so great about this this article, uh, and what I think is really striking to me, is if you read, if you get toward the end of it, the this author who wrote this in, in June 1989 predicted that well, while the United States and Canada would be just absolutely wiped out by the devastating consequences of climate change, the Soviet Union, don't worry, Fred, the Soviet Union is going to bail us out and have a bumper crop while all this failure is going on around. Of course, the Berlin Wall collapsed uh, less than six months later, and you know we, we don't have a Soviet Union today. But, well, but there, don't there's, worry. There's probably an entire other show the, and of predictions in the late 80s about how the Soviet Union is going to so <laughs> surpass the United States on so many things. Well, that's quite true. Well, it's Made just, by Americans. In the for sure. Well, I, what's, I think it's interesting, especially going back, you know, this kind of climate change, population bomb kind of, it kind of, it goes back a long way. I mean, it goes back really to Thomas Malthus. I mean, you really talk about 1790s. It goes back so far where this idea that the world's population is going to increase so much. There's going to be environmental catastrophe. There's going to be a shortage in food supply. They're going to be hundreds of thousands and millions of people dying because they're going to be starving or there's going to be uh, desolation uh, climatically and things like this. And it's interesting, I think, especially when you look at polls about uh, what uh, young Americans in particular think about issues like climate change and whatnot, I think they tend to really gravitate toward these ideas that, you know, climate change is a very serious issue. I think you look at polls, but I think for a lot of people, maybe who've been around a little longer, they've kind of heard and seen some of these predictions in the past that just honestly have just never come to pass. I mean, we, you know, we, we've talked about, of course, this thing that was released in 1989, this AP story predicting the year 2000 was going to be the end. 
But really, these predictions go back even farther than that. I mean, they just, uh, it seems like, you know, every 10 years, there's another group saying well, that in 10 years, the world's well, going to come right. to an end and, and millions of millions of people are going to die. Well, I, I think some of these um, AOC supporters out there who are in their 20s and they're maybe panicking about climate change right now, once, uh, once they're in their 30s, they're going to be total cynics and people start calling them them climate deniers because they're they're going to see that <laughs> hey i'm still here uh they may have even decided to have children and risked it uh and uh which people are being encouraged not to have children because of the climate that that does seem to crisis, be kind of a, a trend apocalypse. lately um, i mean if you really believe the world would end in 10 to 12 years why would you yeah i so. guess i guess you might as well party it up uh yeah. if, if that's the case uh and of course you know what talking about well, i have a 401k or ira <laughs> for that matter just, just spend all your money just right. uh, take all your money to vegas and and have a good time but yeah, yeah of course obviously this this matters it is in in the context of the debate mm-hmm. over things like the green new deal which is uh, very yeah. prominent yeah. where we're talking about fundamentally transforming the american economy i would say moving it toward the ideas of socialism, which I think for many of these groups is the ultimate agenda here, that it's a, a far less about the climate itself and the, the more societal changes and the economic changes that they really desire. Uh, of course, if you look at the, the Green New Deal itself, it actually in some ways does little to stop even their predictions about the trends of climate change. And it does more to actually just put the American economy under the control of the government. Um but kind of going back to uh, historical predictions and, and being wildly off, Fred, I, th- I thought something that especially to bring highlight on the show was the, the very first Earth Day, 1970, which you, know, you really had a collection of a lot of left-wing groups at this thing. And a lot of crazy predic- predictions, Fred, mm-hmm. um, just based basically saying that the world was going to come to an end, that uh, you know hundreds of thousands of people were going to die. Right. I thought there was some really interesting stuff in here. I mean, d- don't you find it kind of interesting? You know, these predictions, Fred. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I, I and 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 they basically they've been redundant over time. That that's what's uh, and and what's I guess shocking to me is that no one's been necessarily held accountable on. When the world hasn't ended in ten years, yeah. when well, the ten years is up, I, the, the UN report wasn't held accountable in nineteen ninety nine, right? Nineteen eighty nine prediction, and well, and it's always countenanced by the, the idea that all, all scientists yeah. agree that this is going to happen. I thought there was this great uh, quote actually from uh, this is Peter Gunter, professor at North Texas North Texas State University, now named University of North Texas, who wrote at this time uh, quote. Demographers agree almost unanimously on the following grim timetable. By 1975, widespread famines will begin in India. These will spread by 1990 to include all of India, Pakistan, China, and the Near East, Africa. By the year 2000, or conceivably sooner, South and Central America will exist under famine conditions. By the year 2000, 30 years from now, the entire world, with the exception of Western Europe, North America, and Australia, will be in famine. Well, I mean, there is a famine currently going on in Venezuela, uh, but I think that may be because of of socialism, not because uh, people are simply running out of food on this earth under a free market and the free market principles that undergird many, well, most economies around, many economies around the world. Um which I find interesting in this debate because a lot of these people argue that, well, to feed the world's population, to stop climate change from happening, we need massive government intervention. But the truth is, is that under a free market system, you actually get more people being fed. You lead to incredible increases in 
crop production. I mean, obviously, since the 1970s, our population has grown enormously, and we're we're really not hurting for food, especially in places like the United States, which has among the most robust free market economies. You just don't have these kind of things, and even stuff like the pollution problem, which and and a lot of these issues that. I think crop up that you see in mostly advanced free market societies where you have, you know, the idea of self-government, you actually have less pollution as well because a lot of people mm-hmm. simply don't want to tolerate, you know, choking on on, you know, noxious fumes and things like this. So a lot of these issues are dealt with by just frankly free people freely associating. Right, right. Now, um your uh, you know the the green new deal is about basically moving United States to a socialist economy, which would be a almost a Venezuela model, uh, which leads to those shortages that, that people are, were so frightened of. It's um, um yeah, and, and uh, one of the things that you mentioned is a, a global population bomb was uh, predicted by two thousand, yeah. which include the famine. So, uh, and and that was a uh, also the uh, the air pollution would lead to you know. People wearing masks and gas masks and things like this by the year 2000. Uh, I thought it was also very interesting that, you know, of course, global, you know, warming is a big thing about Mm -hmm. with modern predictions. Uh, The predictions, of course, the climate uh, is moving up in temperature. This is Mm going to cause massive destruction, you know, the increase of CO2 in particular. But at one time, actually, a, a big arguments being made for global cooling and the coming ice age. I actually found an article from 1958 by Betty Friedan, one of the early Mm. feminists. And it's interesting how, of course, these issues kind of intersect together uh, on the left. But Betty Friedan, early feminist, wrote about the coming ice age in 1958 with a couple of scientists who predicted that at some point all of North America and Europe would be covered by a giant iceberg and that the, the Ice Age was coming, she predicted that if she went by some of the numbers, that it would come in 20 years. Of course, you know, 1978, uh, the, I don't think right. the Ice Age really came in uh, 1978. But this is very big at one time. I mean, this is what a lot of people, and of course, again, countenance the idea that, well, all scientists gr- agree that the Ice Age will be here. It's going to wipe out humanity. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's um, I, yeah. And, uh, one, one thing, like you said, I mean, and it's not to be entirely glib, like, there have been environmental problems like L.A. Right. had a big smog problem. Absolutely. They dealt with it, um, and it didn't lead to mass casualties, mass— Yeah, I, I think a lot of this comes down to—it's this assumption that human beings don't adapt. I mean, obviously, you know, we've dealt with changing in various climates around the world. People live in, in various climates around the world except for Antarctica— uh, people have, have existed and thrived in so many different places, and, and we can't expect this world. I mean, the world is, of course, a very dynamic place. It is constantly changing. How are we best going to counter these things? Is it going to be uh, you know, the way that Venezuela does things, or is it going to be the way that the United States does things uh, in, in a free market system where people adapt to the conditions around them? I think a lot of these predictions, uh, they kind of have a certain – belief that well this is this is the only thing that can happen they kind of you know if, if the world's going to warm up if humanity won't adapt and we'll all just you know burn up and things like this 
And I think a lot of these predictions, that's why they end up coming off so so silly. I mean, we're talking about, oh, well, the eastern seaboard will be underwater. <laughs> but, you know, people adjust to those things uh, very much so. And I, I think that some of these predictions are so wildly off base. I mean, you've even covered, Fred, uh, uh, some, especially with, you know, the former EPA chief. Could you could you kind of talk about that a little uh, bit? Because yeah. I think it's interesting um, in a modern sense. Okay, yeah. And, and we talked about this. Uh, that, yeah, I remember covering an event. Uh, at the White House during the Obama administration. It was in, uh, I believe, April 2016. John Holdren, the White House science advisor, along with Gina McCarthy, the EPA administrator at the time, uh, came out and they, they presented this uh, report that called The Impacts of Climate Change on Human Health in the United States. Uh, and Holdren, uh, so, some, some of the comments that they made were just so far off. Uh, uh, Holdren said the report projects, I'm quoting here, that under the middle of the road scenarios, we can see from thousands to tens of thousands additional heat-related deaths in the United States each summer. Uh, and then the numbers are really striking, he, he continues. Uh, and he goes on to say, people who try to work outside will basically be unable to control their body temperatures and die. This is really, really a big deal. Wow. And, uh, you know, and, and then uh, wrapping it up, Gina McCarthy t- manages to say, oddly, all, sort of out of mood, there's really something new to learn, and that is kind of fun. <laughs> well, McCarthy, it's interesting. Of course, she's made some other kind of crazy predictions. She was uh, the former EPA chief under Obama administration. Right. And I, I love the fact that I think this was 2015 that she actually predicted that this is going to be the end of winter. That winter mm-hmm. will be gone soon. That you won't be able to ski. I, she was, I believe, she was in a uh, at a ski resort. I, I think you covered this, Fred. Uh, but she said, "This is so funny. In mountain towns that depend on winter tourism, the realities of climate change really hit home. Shorter, warmer winters mean a shorter season to enjoy the winter sports we love, and a financial hit for local economies depend on our winter sports. Even if you hate winter, climate change affects you because climate risks are economic risks." Skiing, snowboarding, and other types of winter recreation add $67 billion to the economy every year, and they support 900,000 jobs. And, of course, she's saying basically this is just all going to go away because the climate will change and we won't have any more winters. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that, that was actually at the same time. And I did report on that time, that too. That was the same time in which um, Holdren actually came out with a separate report. And I believe this was around 2015 that the, they – uh, did this, uh, but Holdren came out with a separate report about uh, the polar vortex in which that was going to make winters much worse. So they, they were actually two separate offices putting out two conflicting uh, information, which was odd, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, again, I think this gets... The, tripping gets the, over one another, I think. Gets maybe. the point, too, that a, a lot of people don't, of course, remember that these things happened, that these predictions took place, but, I mean, maybe some people who are paying attention... Uh, notice that these these kind of predictions tend to prop up all the time, and you get these things that well, all scientists agree. You know, the climate's going to change unless you do this. You know, here's the uh, the the basically we need to now have government control of this or that to make sure that this future doesn't happen. And what we see is a lot of those predictions are just wildly wrong, or there are variables that they don't quite grapple with that makes things very different. And if we had allowed the government to control this or that industry, it would have made things a lot worse for Americans across the board. Yeah. 
Either that or somehow secretly someone found another way and we just didn't know. And all these tragedies have been averted. Right. Well, that's, that's true. That's, that's true. We were saved by a miracle that even right. we don't fully understand. Right. Um, so what we're going to kind of do is we're going to change gears here. We're going to talk to Nick Loris, who's a environmental expert at the Heritage Foundation. We actually had a chance to talk to him when the Green New Deal was first announced, the the legislation that has been pushed by Representative Ocasio-Cortez of New York City, who's an open uh, democratic socialist. And so we're going to we're going to play that interview that we got a chance to do on that day. We're now joined by Nick Loris, who is the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy, Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Thanks for having me. So uh, we'd really like to, to, to dive deeper in kind of the, the history of uh, green hysteria. And, and, you know, of, of course, we've talked a little bit about uh, the 1970s and some of the predictions on Earth Day. But there's definitely been a lot of more recent uh, I would say, kind of ridiculous things in this kind of whole debate over environmentalism and whatnot. Is, is there anything that really strikes you, especially in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, uh, as far as the arguments that have made that have been really radical that really haven't come to fruition? Yeah, one of the ones that always comes to mind is Al Gore's prediction that the polar ice caps uh, would have <laughs> melted in five years, and that was uh, about five or six years ago um, when that was supposed to have all been said and done. And so that's the one I usually go to. But uh, I was looking more recently at some of the statements that were made in the 80s and 90s, and it's incredible how much they mirror the things that are being said today. The latest national climate assessment that came out, as well as the addendum to the the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that said we had 12 years to act. Uh, I went back and looked at some statements from UN officials dating back to the 80s and 90s, and, and they said almost the exact same thing. There's a quote from a UN official in 1989 that basically said we had 11 years by the year 2000 that we had to act, uh, and we're already at the tipping point. Uh, and you know, here we are, um, well past that tipping point. Uh, and yes, the climate is changing, but nowhere has it been any point where these predictions have come true. And there's no repercussions if they don't come true. Has, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, has there ever been sort of maybe... A lesson learned that don't predict a date certain because people will stop listening. I mean, because people have stopped listening uh, when you keep predicting a date certain. And but they uh, apparently continue to do that with. Yeah, it's exactly right. And it's funny. I think the people who I talk to who are older, um, who have kind of lived through these predictions and seen them not come true, have kind of wisened up to the fact that, that you know people are, are making a mountain out of a molehill when they come to making these predictions. Uh, the, the sad thing is, it seems like it, it has a short lifespan uh, when these things don't come true, that people kind of forget that they made these predictions because mm-hmm. there are no repercussions and because there's an agenda behind making these predictions, which is to fundamentally transform how we produce and consume energy. So there are people who, are, I think, are now tuned out to the climate debate, uh, especially when they understand how much it's going to cost them, uh, both when they pay their electricity bills and the prices at the pump. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you have people continuing to make these dire, dire predictions. And, and even when they don't come true, they seem to double down, not learn their lesson. Yeah, I think maybe that's one of the reasons why millennials, and I assume now 
know, Gen Zers as well, are particularly fearful on this issue. I mean, they've been taught many times in their schools. They've watched Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore's documentary, and a lot of them are convinced that the world is going to come to an end. Maybe they don't have experience of a lot of the older generations who have seen this exact same tale play out. And here we are. It's 2019. That the world seems to be, you know, it seems to be okay. We're not underwater in Chicago yet. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like a lot of these predictions have come true. I, I suppose that's a very easy thing to tell somebody, especially who is very young, hasn't really had experience with this, even this debate. That, I mean, some of their arguments. I mean, they really they kind of have a Malthusian kind of view of this too. I mean, it's not just arguing about the environment. It's just we'll run out of resources. The the world is gonna we're gonna have hundred. Some cases, some of the predictions were hundreds of millions of people were gonna die in years. And these arguments just repeat themselves. I mean, we're kind of going through the 1970 Earth Day, which is just some real doozies in it. I mean, really, the world's going to end in five to ten years. Hundreds of millions of people are going to die. We're going to starve to death. And the, the truth is... Human beings have found a way to better feed each other. I mean, we've actually come up with better ways in large part because of capitalism, because of free markets, because we haven't taken the advice of a lot of these folks who have said, well, if you don't embrace quasi or fully socialist ideas to control the economy and the energy sector, uh, we've actually seen a, a total opposite of what they predicted. We've seen actually a growth in, in how people feed each other. We've seen poverty decline I mean, since the 1970s, not just for the United States, for people all over the world. Uh, can you kind of talk about that and you know how the, the kind of difference in these worldviews and how we've kind of been be more productive because we haven't embraced these ideas? Yeah, it's exactly right. And if you look at climate-related deaths around the world, they've dropped significantly, too, because we have better access to air conditioning when it's hot out, <laughs> uh, heating when it's cold out. And so around the world, these climate-related deaths have have dropped uh, incredibly uh, as levels of wealth and prosperity have increased and we've grown the amount of resources that we have to, to withstand uh, climate-related events, whether they're caused by man-made emissions or not. And you, and you can look at areas where there have been earthquakes uh, in the Dominican Republic versus Haiti, uh, or even in California versus Haiti. Yes, there's more uh, economic damage in a place like California because it's destroying more stuff, but look at the resilience (laughs) and the amount of deaths uh, as a result of a hurricane in a developed nation versus one that's developing and doesn't have access to those resources, uh, stronger infrastructure, uh, all of the things that we know and have to protect against weather-related events, whether it's a hurricane or an earthquake. And so that's the the real message that I try to get across is that uh, higher levels of of economic growth, um, higher levels of well-being and prosperity are the best way to insulate and protect against the changing climate. These policies that the left are proposing, whether it's a Green New Deal, uh, massive carbon taxes, cap-and-trade regulations, that's only going to increase the price of energy, do nothing to mitigate climate change, and take away resources that we could otherwise be spending uh, on preparing for any type of disaster preparedness. Yeah, I mean, getting a little into, I mean, the Green New Deal has kind of become, it's in the news. It actually polls pretty well, even among Republicans. I kind of think that it's because a lot of people don't know what's in it yet. They don't actually know how much it's going to cost them, (laughs) uh, how much these policies will transform uh, their lives in a really bad way. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the Green New Deal, what it actually means? I realize some of the the proposals are very vague, obviously, I think maybe intentionally so. Uh, But you kind of explain what that does and, and, you know, why this is something, maybe a unique threat to the American system? Yeah, I mean, it's been a a massive call for just this economic and social uh, redistribution of how we 
make and consume energy uh, and throws things that have nothing to do with energy uh, on the side of it, like uh, access to healthcare, high quality education, uh, guarantees a living wage, you know, all of those things. But just on the energy side, uh, what it plans to do or proposes to do is uh, change uh, us from, um, you know, what we have now, which is a lot of affordable, reliable energy for our, for our uh, electricity and transportation sector, and switch that over to zero emissions or renewable energy sources um, with a goal of 100% renewables uh, in the next 10 years. And right now, 87% of our electricity sources come from coal, uh, natural gas, and, and nuclear. Uh, and about 97% of our transportation fuel comes from petroleum products. So, it'd be a huge, huge shift in the way we produce and consume energy on the electricity side, but also on the transportation fuel side, which would have economically disastrous effects uh, Really across the board, because energy is such a necessary component of everything we make and do, you're not just hit when your electricity bill comes or when you go to the gas station, but you're hit again and again, and it has these huge ripple effects throughout the economy. Not to mention that the proposal wants to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions from the industrial sector, from manufacturing sectors, uh, as well as from the agricultural sectors. So you're talking about hurting farmers and all the hardworking Americans in our energy-intensive manufacturing sectors as well. And I agree with you. I think people like the concept of a Green New Deal because it sounds interesting and it sounds like, hey, wind and solar is free. We just need to ramp that up and we'll solve our climate problems. Uh, But the reality is Americans are just not willing to pay for it. There was a a new poll that was released by NBC that uh, Americans wouldn't even be willing to pay Ten dollars per month in higher electricity bills to combat climate change, <laughs> and this would be, you know, hundreds of times more than that. And so, uh, yes, I think it, it sounds appetizing, but w- when people are asked, "Oh, how much is this going to cost?" Uh, that that support drops off like crazy. <laughs> Ten dollars. I mean, that's really something, especially when we consider. I mean, that the the Medicare for All proposal would cost somewhere in the order of thirty trillion dollars over over a decade. I mean, that's. That kind of shows you where there's a little bit of a pie in the sky thing here too, but it's also just a, a technological impossibility, right? I mean, some of they're proposing isn't just obviously very costly. I mean, it's just not possible to switch entirely to zero emissions. I mean, all solar. I mean, this seems very vague, and it seems like we're just not there. It, it does, and the FAQ, the Frequently Asked Questions document that the. Uh Cortez office put out today says that, oh, don't worry, we're not going to include nuclear, we're not going to need nuclear, we're not going to use uh, any more fossil fuels, uh, whether it's coal, oil, or natural gas. We are intent on this 100% renewables, and it's banking on a a lot of technological advancements that uh, seem pretty iffy right now. I mean, you're banking on battery storage becoming uh, widely available and uh, dropping in cost significantly because these are intermittent sources of energy in wind and solar. The wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't shine all the time, so you do have to back it up with battery storage, and that's what makes solar and wind attractive when it's backed up with natural gas uh, in some states because you can have a, a, a mixed generation. But in this case, if they're taking all of those backup generation sources offline, that baseload electricity that we know is affordable and reliable and is constantly running, uh, you're talking about some pretty scary scenarios where you're not just increasing the price of electricity, but you're also uh, questioning the reliability of the grid and talking about potential for rolling brownouts and blackouts. And, and nothing scares people mm-hmm. more when they flip their lights on and you know power doesn't come online. Wow. Right. Well, and, and and we saw that. I mean, uh, and look. 10, 20 years ago in California, they had these rolling blackouts. 
in large part because of these green policies that the state was pushing, right? That's exactly yeah. right. Uh, and, and some states are gravitating more towards that. But if you look at a state like Texas, where they have more retail choice in the electricity market, people, in some instances, they are demanding renewable powers and they're willing to pay for it. And that's ultimately what you want to get to is not to be anti-renewable or anti-competition and choice, but provide consumers with the choice that if they want wind and solar uh, and if there's a demand for it and you have competitive markets, then producers will supply it. But when you mandate it and force this consumption on consumers, uh, not only are you taking away choice, but you're also asking them to pay a pretty penny for it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, too, about uh, in the early 1900s, there was a, a conservation movement, Teddy Roosevelt and so forth, that was not entirely unsensible. Uh, and and then, then you have this leap into from conservation to environmentalism, which and that includes all these doomsday predictions. How, 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 did, how did that evolve or, I guess, devolve, might be the better word. Yeah, I think part of it was that they didn't have anything else to go after. Uh, You know, in in some respects, if you look at what the United States has gone through, even, you know, through the Industrial Revolution, you know, we had criterion pollutants uh, that had adverse impacts on human health and the environment. And through technological improvements, but also through some sensible policies, we significantly reduced the black carbon and the the smog and the things that we know impact human health and the environment. Uh, And climate change, I think, became the, the next thing for them to, to do because it is so ubiquitous. It, it's very difficult to solve. So it kind of gives them a, a never-ending problem to go after. And then it allows them to not just control uh, how resources are spent, but also you know control what type of policies will um, fundamentally change how uh, we live our lives. And so I think you know part of it is a power grab, uh, but part of it is just this uh, this never-ending belief uh, and this endless stream of resources that they'll have at their disposal because this is a problem that isn't going away anytime soon. It, it's not the solvable challenges like we had with acid rain where there was a cap-and-trade program and that ended acid rain here in the United States and it was a sensible policy that uh, solved an environmental problem. This is almost a never-ending problem where they're going to continue to be able to uh, lobby. They're going to continue to be able to, to raise revenues and funds to go after this. You know, Researchers are going to continue to get dollars to study climate. Uh, and so now it's kind of become its economy of its own. And I think that's pretty appealing for a lot of people who are making a, a living off of it. Yeah, kind of final question. How do you respond to it? Let's say people really believe that, look, man-made climate change is really happening. We, we, we got to do so. We're all the, the world's going to end. It's coming to end. How do you respond? Because it seems like actually in a lot of these debates, when we talk about the Paris Climate Accord, we have these all these other countries that have embraced this kind of we got to fight climate change, actually seem to do worse than the United States, which actually got out of these this Paris Accords. Like how is there a, a way that we can kind of have a better environment while still having free markets and still have this prosperity too? Yeah, and I think that's a, a huge part of the conversation. You know, we talked a lot about the costs of the Green New Deal, but if you look at the benefits side, they're almost non-existent. And even mm-hmm. if you reduced uh, America's CO2 emissions down to zero by the year 2050 or by the year 2030, you're talking about averting global temperatures a few tenths of a degree Celsius by the turn of the century Mm -hmm. because you have countries like India and China who are going to continue to build coal fire power plants as well as a, a lot of the rest of the developing world and even some parts of the developed world have returned to building coal plants uh, because they are prioritizing affordable energy to their economies and, and continue to grow. So if you look at climate change as this uh, uh, 
collective action problem, U.S. election, U.S. action alone is not going to to make a difference. But that said, we should embrace free market policies that will continue to drive innovation and consequently reduce emissions. That's what we've seen here in the United States with the fracking revolution and and shale gas um, becoming more economically affordable and replacing some of our older coal-fired power plants. If we have a, a free market uh, policy that embraces new nuclear technologies, new renewable technologies, and can freely trade them around the world, then you're not only going to improve access to affordable energy, but you are going to get those environmental benefits that we all want. But I think for right now, the developing world is in you know such a bind with trying to get access to affordable power when more than a billion people don't have access to affordable power. They want any type of electricity source that they can get. That makes sense. It's it's amazing this is getting pushed at the same time that America is becoming energy independent. I mean, we have had this kind of revolution. It's created so many jobs and it's been such a benefit, not just for us domestically, but in national security. I mean, you go across the board that this is what's on the table now is now we need to end this and transform ourselves into this, this nebulous green economy it really is. Uh, an amazing thing. Well, th- thank you so much, Nick, for, for joining us on the right side of history. This has been very informative. Anytime. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. Thanks. So, Fred, wrapping up here, I think there there are a lot of lessons that we can take from history, uh, especially given this climate change issue, which, again, it, it definitely lures in a lot of younger people, a lot of millennials, a lot of Gen Z people. Uh, who also have very positive views of things like socialism. I mean, that's this is what we see in a lot of polls, and they see this as kind of, uh, you know, socialism is kind of the answer to solve the problem of climate change. These issues are linked, I think, now as they have been in the past, as we saw with 1970s Earth Day. You know, a lot of people were pushing a lot of left-wing solutions and government control the economy to prevent hundreds of thousands and millions and millions of deaths. Uh, but a lot of these predictions just uh, they've been wildly wrong and they've they've I think proven time and again that when you hear somebody say all scientists agree you know to be well kind of suspicious sometimes well um, a lot of people have pointed out that the same thing was said about eugenics in the early 20th century yeah. all, all scientists agree that, and I, <laughs> we I don't think anyone would in good conscience agree with that today yeah I, I, that's the, that is a, a very good point and then you know one time that this was uh, something that was pushed very heavily things like like eugenics and you know sometimes it's better to take a step back and mm-hmm. think well is this really something that's right for us is this something that uh, comports with philosophy and other things too I mean when you hear you know scientists believe this scientists believe that I mean you should not take science as, a, as an article of faith there are a lot of other factors in this world that human flourishing, you know, needs. And of course, we live in a free society. And over time, I think we've mostly gotten this right in places like the United States. You know, the challenges that have been before us, we've adjusted to as a society. And to not simply say the scientists all believe, therefore, the government's going to do this, do X or Y or Z. Uh, It's always been a danger and a lure, especially for those who believe in kind of collectivist solutions uh, for American Mm -hmm. society. So, uh, thanks to everyone for joining us on The Right Side of History. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, you can also check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the Daily Signal website. Also, take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page for when we air our next program. And if you are further interested in our work, check out my Twitter, at Jarrett Stepman, and Fred's Twitter handle, at WH. Thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, executive produced by Jared Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.
What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today.